Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Struggle Session. I'm Leslie III. I'm Jack Allison. And today we're joined by a very special guest here in studio, Mr. David Hader. Thanks for being here, David. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, and we're also joined, uh, uh, of course, as, all, uh, uh, as well by the wonderful Shannon Strucci. Thanks for being here, Shannon. Thank you. Thank you for having me as well. Yeah, I consider Shannon uh, uh, basically, you know, our third co-host. <laughs> Thank you. you. Wow, she's been on so many times, so wow. that's why I yeah. didn't introduce. Not you. in, not in the sort of like financial stake. Uh, oh no, uh, no, none of that. But, but no, we're not uh, making but, that mistake but again. In, in, in honor, <laughs> yeah, uh, an honorary position. We, this is a big show, big episode. We had to get a big guest, Mr. David mm-hmm. Hader. You know, you know him. You already know who it is. The voice yeah. of Solid Snake. Yeah. That's right. Wow. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> I am the voice of Solid Snake. Blade Runner. <laughs> the only true voice of Solid Snake. We will go on record yeah. on this episode saying yes. he is Snake. Yeah. Ah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, Hideo was one of the greatest creators of all time, but what he did to you was not kind, I have to say. It was was not kind on five. Well, I appreciate that. It's, uh, I'll, 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 I'll. Take your stance on it. (laughs) I tend to to agree. (laughs) I tend to agree, but it's fine. I had a very good run of games. Yeah. All right. And today we are talking about my possibly my favorite film of all time. We all love it. You all should love it. Blade Runner, really Scott's 1982 cyberpunk futuristic neo noir epic based on the Android's dream of electronic sheep by Philip K. Dick. And we're just going to dive right into it. But first, let's start by talking about like when did we all first see it? Because kind of the lore of Blade Runner is that nobody cared about it when it first came out hmm. and everyone who did kind of hated it. So when did you all first see it and what were your first impressions? I'm probably older than everybody here. So I saw it It when it came out in the theater. I was, I don't know, uh, 12, I think. And it was the same summer as like E.T. Okay, sure. I was all fired up about Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I was like, oh, it's a sci-fi film with Harrison Ford. I'm so excited. And I went in and I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> it was so slow and and dark and disturbing and Harrison didn't say anything funny and and uh so I was desperately disappointed the first time through and it took me um didn't take me too long I mean by the by the time I was 15 16 I I had understood um just what an incredible achievement it was and what a spectacular film it just it came at a time when movies were changing in the Spielbergian mm-hmm. uh, George Lucas sense so radically that we just didn't expect it. It was the same thing that happened with John Carpenter's The Thing, which you know came out yeah. like two weeks after E.T. and everybody was like, "Oh, another alien movie." And it's like, <laughs> oh, I don't think it's what you're expecting. <laughs> yeah, I guess that they share the same sort of predilection. Like these are not movies that are necessarily aiming to please. These are not no. movies no. that are uh, uh, no. going out of their way to be kind to the audience necessarily. <laughs> no, they're not. I, neither of them are an easy ride. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, the thing is, is genuinely entertaining. If mm-hmm. you love, you know, mystery and horror, and 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 it's it's a badass ride. It just wasn't what people were expecting. But Blade Runner does it's like a Kubrick film. It doesn't go mm-hmm. out of its way to please you. Mm-hmm. It's it's just dropping you into its world and you have to deal with it, which I now respect. But at 12, I was like, what the hell, man? Which I guess they tried in the original release. They were like, this is like a completely this is a movie that it does not care if the audience can follow it. And so they were like, let's add in like five voiceover lines and <laughs> see right. maybe if it's we can get that. To- yeah. yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. Right. So the first time I saw it, it was it was kind of weird because you know growing up in the era I did where like movies would always like you know you saw Alien or you know Halloween or you know all these different t- films on like cable and Showtime mm-hmm. and HBO. Blade Runner was never on any of these things. Like I never saw even a single like image of Blade Runner until I dug it out of like the blockbuster video and brought it yeah. home. And by that point, this was in the director's cut era so they had sure. this wasn't the final cut era this was the director's cut era and i remember watching it and first i was like something's wrong with the dvd because the aspect ratio was really like small and tiny um but after a while like i really just was sucked in into this mm-hmm. world and like i couldn't believe how good it looked i didn't know movies could look this right. good and have like this night as special effects that felt as real and as like big and epic um as they did so that was what initial my initial impression of it i was just completely on board with it probably because they had already gotten rid of the voiceovers uh by then <laughs> i first saw it in college um i was born in the 90s i'm probably the youngest person here by a little bit and I, I got into movies as a teenager, and one of my online friends linked me the Tears and Rain speech. Hmm. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> uh, this is cool. And I watched it. And I also was like blown away by how beautiful it was mm-hmm. and um, just how the depth, not only of like the visual design, but like the philosophical depth of it. Even I was probably like 19 when I saw it, which I'm glad I didn't see it at 12 because I would have mm-hmm. just been, I might've still liked it, but I would have been really confused, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't have appreciated it on the same level. Yeah. I think I saw it at like 14 and I similarly, I think I saw it cause my like dad, my dad was like a big DVD collector when I was a teenager. And so like that was sort of my education in all of the classics. And I think I maybe did see it when I saw it at like 14, I saw the director's cut of it. And I did think it was badass, but I also didn't understand anything about it. <laughs> I was like, "This right. is like so cool!" Uh, and every and honestly, it, and honestly, like I, I, I guess like watching it as a teenager in like you know when I was fourteen, I'm like, you kind of see how everything took from it. Uh, uh, I guess was mm-hmm. the first thing that struck me. You know, watching Blade Runner was just like, "Wow, this uh, uh this was doing all this stuff like twenty years early." Yeah, like there's so like it's really kind of hard to even like name all the things that take that borrow from uh, Blade Runner, not just like American media, but like Japan. Like mm-hmm. it's huge in the Japan. There's a couple of that Hideo Kojima guy, if anybody's ever heard of him, <laughs> basically like a bootleg like Blade Runner video game. <laughs> so let's sp- take a moment and talk about like how this. Uh, film envisions the future. In fact, the uh, about six months in the future, November <laughs> two thousand. Yeah, it's the present. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's feeling. It's feeling fairly on track. Actually, it is feeling like we're fairly on track for Blade Runner future to happen in about six months. Except for the flying cars, I guess we're just behind on flying cars. But as far as uh, uh, L.A. being like an overpopulated like uh, hellscape, uh, yeah. we're getting there. We are getting there. And the atmosphere going crazy. Yeah, we get every. <laughs> we always get everything but the flying cars. Yeah. <laughs> It's <laughs> the one thing that they uh, were often in, on all the dystopian futures yeah. was flying cars. Yeah, police shooting on site. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. At least we don't have flying cop cars <laughs> that yell at you to move along and whatever. That's one plus of not having flying cars. Yeah. It's- so there's so the guy who came up with like a lot of the visuals for this is a guy named Sid Mead. And if you Google Sid Mead and look up all his imagery and his art, it's all this very like optimistic 
optimistic Isaac Asimov's type, you know, mm. art, sci-fi, science fiction art. But only with Blade Runner did he create this, you know, this really dark, dreary, rain-covered, smoke-filled uh, mm-hmm. dystopia. And I think, I, you know, you got to give a lot of credit to, like, Ridley Scott for, you yep. know, having the idea of saying, all right, we're going to do the future, but it's going to be completely fucked up and smog-filled. And that's kind of why this film, like, still feels so real and relevant today because he didn't he he was not you know optimistic about the Mm -hmm. future coming up Mm -hmm. well he also i also heard that ridley um his i don't know if this is apocryphal or not that his core shooting style is shine the brightest light you've got at the camera put stuff in front of it and then Hmm. fill the room with smoke ha and (laughs) um, and so i think that you know maybe uh, he took Sid Mead's designs, and it's 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 probably the greatest production design in the history of film. I mean, it's you just are immersed in this world, mm-hmm. and um, and then I think Ridley Ridley came in and poured rain all over it, and filled the thing with smoke, and and just made it dark and and dreary, and and you got this whole sense of a world that was hidden back there in the mist, and just all these incredible details. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, it just feels so like tactile. Like you can yeah. just touch because it everything. was real. He, yeah. They built it all, right? Which and is a, those, I mean, those miniatures are are incredible. The 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 flying blimps and the huge billboards. You know, those are all miniatures. Which uh, and the and the Tyrell Corporation. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, as a filmmaker, I always want to work with miniatures because they look so real. Um, mm-hmm. And they never let me because they're like, "No, nah, we'll just do it in the computer." And, and uh, it's easier to note that way. It's easier to note when it's done in the computer. Uh, well, you when can, you shoot yeah. it with miniatures; they can't tinker with it. That's right. That's right. You can change it up or whatever. But you know, if you look at uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, those are all well, what's called bigatures. So mm-hmm. you know, the the Helm's Deep set or whatever was, you know, a twelve foot high actual mm-hmm. carved set, and you can feel the rain on it. You can yeah. feel the the light on it. It's because you can tell as a human being, like when you watch things that are captured on film, you can tell when it's a cartoon that's and right. when it's not a cartoon. That's actually. right. Your, brain just just, your brain's it. like, oh, that part's a cartoon. So uh, yeah. that's what I was thinking about. I, I, I said this on the show before, but I'm like, all these Marvel movies, I think, are just Disney training adults to watch cartoons because <laughs> they really are just getting a plate of like Chris Evans' face and putting it in a cartoon pretty that's, much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, but yes, absolutely. There is something like very, you know, the, uh, we, we, we meant like, like he built the world of Blade Runner. There's something so like uh, when we're talking about the the production design, it starts with these like big shots uh, uh, like above the cloud line, basically, mm-hmm. and it feels so foreign and alien. But then when we get down to the ground level, it feels alien, but like still in a way that like is you know so reflective and reminiscent of our real world. It is interesting yeah. to go from that like bird's eye view down to the bottom and be like, oh, this is our world, kind of. Well, yeah, it gives it enormous scope. And if you were there, uh, I, I can't remember what studio. They shot it at Pinewood or something in London, and um, and you could walk onto that street. Hmm. You know, you'd you'd be there with those trucks and with the with the people with their weird umbrellas and all that stuff. That was a real <laughs> thing. So yeah, that, it gives it this amazing reality. Yeah, one of the things I love this kind of you know lost now is that this movie was it was made in the 1980s and that was when everybody in america thought japan was going to take over everything that's right, <laughs> that's that's have, right. like so everything is Jap- japanese but then you know the recession hit so unfortunately our future will not be filled with uh japan kanji uh everywhere I like well, <laughs> it'll be it will but it'll be chinese yes yeah. just yeah, do, do a special edition and replace them all with chinese yeah. and it is accurate so 
let's dive into kind of the story and the themes of Blade Runner. So you have Rick Deckard. He is a what they call a Blade Runner, a bounty hunter who goes around killing any androids who are supposed to stay on the off-world colonies as slaves, but any who mm. come to Earth, they're supposed to be killed on site. And this kind and that is kind of also the same premise as the book uh, Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep, which goes in a very different direction. But in the film Blade Runner, we're kind of meant to be more sympathetic towards the androids mm -hmm. because all they're trying to do really is get more life as Roy mm -hmm. Batty says he, um, they are supposed to have a four year limited lifespan and they're trying to find they've come to earth to find a way in order to you know have more life just to live longer they're not necessarily there to hurt people although they're willing to yeah. but and able to they're like very, <laughs> very able to. Yeah, like, very easily like, yeah and so we follow Rick Deckard as he hunts down these androids. And you, I have to say, watching it, you know, again today, you don't really get the feeling that Deckard is really much of a hero. Mm -mm. No, no, and I don't think he feels like a hero either. I, you know, it's it's so brilliant because the audience gets it. You know, you've got these amazing, charismatic actors, uh, Daryl Hannah and Rucker Howard, mm -hmm. playing these these characters who just they want the secret to life and they want to, they, they want, they don't want to be treated like slaves and they, and, and, you know, everybody gets that. It's so it's sort of like the X-Men movies. Everybody hates the X-Men and, and the audience is like, but why they're, they're awesome. And, <laughs> they're, and they're the good guys. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, it's really interesting that, that throughout the whole thing, Deckard doesn't really believe in what he's doing. He didn't want to come back at all. He, he gets blackmailed yes. into it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting, actually, like, you know, uh, so many films do the thing where they're like the villain has a good reason for being a villain. But Blade Runner, like, really, like, makes them the innocents. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, Farrah Fawcett in this movie, like, is in, is like an innocent. Even Rutger Hauer, who's like a big, you know, destroyer of a, of a man. You get the sense that he's got like a three year old's innocence to him or That's, something. Yeah. Well, they've got mm -hmm. a th he's got a three year old's experience. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Leonard. Lloyd. Oh, the, yeah, the, the toy guy. Yeah, like no, the, no, 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 no. Uh, the 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 big Leon? the big replicant, Leon. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they all, you know, they're all adults, and they're all. Mm -hmm. But when he finds out, uh, when Rucker Hauer finds out that um, the Snake Woman has been killed, you know, he starts to cry, and mm -hmm. and they do. They only have the experience of somebody who's who's three or four years old. Mm -hmm. um, they've got the intellect of, of an adult that they've been programmed with, but um, but emotionally they're very very innocent. And it's it's really very effective yeah and so this is one big you know the, has everybody read do androids dream have, i have i haven't finished it i'm halfway through it i it's haven't read it oh well i'll try not to spoil it for you but, i don't i don't mind if you <laughs> spoil it <laughs> but it's very good but there That's, is is a difference um so in the in the novel the androids are the problem with the androids is that they have no empathy whatsoever that's mm -hmm. what the void comptef test is is a right. empathy test that's why nice. they asked him about animals and stuff because uh, like oh you got a calfskin wallet um and and androids dream of electronic sheep and blade runner as well like basically all animals are extinct so yeah. mm -hmm. the humans are super obsessed with keeping animals in fact the government forces them to keep an a animal just to show that they're like still human um and so androids don't have that same response that same empathy for other living right. creatures and that's kind of and so in the novel they're 
you know, it's like a hyper vegan world, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, really it, is. it is. It's like right. all the animals have died. And so, like, everyone has in their hearts, like, I love every animal. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's how they prove they're human. And that's how you prove an android is not human. And, and ultimately, the, in the novel, it kind of shows that, like, the androids aren't really worthy of this humanity ultimately right. there they are really cruel rachel for example is kind of the main villain in the novel she's like a mm. f- femme fatale who um you know messes a lot with decker and tries to entrap him and ensnare him in the movie it's kind of the complete opposite i think yeah. you, mm-hmm. you come away feeling like they're more human than everyone else in a lot of yeah. ways well there's that great moment where leon he says uh He's taking the void contest, and and the officer says, uh, "There's a there's a tortoise, and it's on its back, mm-hmm. and it's burning in the sun, and you're not helping it." And he's like, "Well, how come I'm not helping it?" Mm-hmm. He goes, "I don't know, but you're not helping." And you can tell that he would help if he was there. It's a it's a really s- strange element, but it really illustrates how empathetic he is. This is almost like it's almost like what you know what Ridley Scott does with the the replicants in this movie feels a little almost like what ended up happening what like uh um what 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 happened with Starship Troopers it's almost like he read mm-hmm. the like original source material and was like I disagree with this yes, like right. I don't think the androids are the bad guys <laughs> like similarly right. to uh, uh uh Starship Troopers over there and I, but I think he did a really good job of creating this other parallel sto- story to it taking kind of the same ideas and coming up with a new thing that you know, adapts the novel to a film in a way that's really understandable, really easy to follow. And now, David, as someone who probably, who willingly, from what I understand, took on the most daunting adaptation of our lifetime, <laughs> truly, <laughs> by um, by doing the screenplay <laughs> for Watchmen, um, how do you feel about that? What do you think about you know adapting something to film and changing it up, especially something that is so widely uh, well? regarded already well first of all i i appreciate the sentiment i i tend to disagree with that statement because i think lord of the rings was a million times harder to adapt than watchmen um what i did with watchmen was i managed to fit it into a filmic structure but i essentially did a straight adaptation of a brilliant book so there's so much awesomeness page for page, beat for beat in Watchmen, that it really wasn't that difficult to adapt. What was difficult was to keep it um, true without the st- various studios ruining it. We, I was on it for nearly a decade, and four different studios, four different directors, and, and basically wow. my job was to protect it and make sure that it remained Watchmen. Um, uh, but I did change the ending, um, much to some people's chagrin. So it's your and, fault. And, Everybody keeps yelling at us. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of, I mean, it seems to be 50 50. You know, half of the people um, loved, the, loved the, and appreciated the change, and half the people were like, oh, I missed the, I missed the squid, squid and, yes. which I do too. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the, I love the squid ending, and it just wouldn't fit into a, three-hour movie it, it, we if, just didn't have the if, if you don't mind up. me asking because i do like find this fascinating like i've gone back and forth on it because like w- when i watch the movie i'm like okay it makes sense when i read the comic like no bring back the squid like what <laughs> well, like, I'm, obviously you're someone who loves the comic like what how did you come to that point if you don't mind me asking yeah well there were a number of elements that went into it i mean first of all uh and this is pretty disturbing i i signed my contract for Watchmen on September 10th, 2001. Wow. Oh. True. Wow. True story. 
Wow. And um, and then 9-11 happened the next day. And I thought, well, the movie's dead. We're never going to make this. <laughs> um, but the first thing I did was, I, as much as I love the images of the squid legs and all of the, the dead um, scattered around Times Square, I didn't feel like we could do that. I mean, particularly uh, at that time, I didn't want to show a bunch of, of uh, dead people in the middle of New York. Didn't seem worth it for a movie. It's a difficult pitch. It's difficult to it's pitch difficult after pitch. that time, sure. And so then, uh, so that sort of sparked me to, I think that, you know, people are going to die, but they need to be um, vaporized. It needs to be less visceral. It needs to be less um, bloody. And plus, in the book, there's a there's a motif of people, like spray-painted silhouettes on the, on the walls, mm-hmm. right? And they call them Hiroshima silhouettes, meaning... And I've seen this. I've been to Hiroshima. Uh, people blown away by the by the atomic bomb. Some of them were just blown to shadows up on the wall, and and it's a really creepy effect. And so I thought, you know, that's a way that we could still have the body count we needed without having such an upsetting visceral image. Uh, and then um, uh, what? Darren Aronofsky was attached for a weekend, um, and I flew out to New York to talk to him about it. Uh, uh, but he had to. He was still working on the fountain, so he couldn't finish it. Um, and he had a buddy who was a like a physicist or something, and he suggested, he said, look, I think the key is Dr. Manhattan. And I thought, that's totally brilliant. Like, that's, um, that is the key. The, 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 there's, the audience will always buy one piece of magic mm-hmm. in your film. So whether it's the force or the ring or whatever, everything comes from one piece of magic. And it kind of felt to me like the squid, Dr. Manhattan was one piece of magic and the squid was a different piece of magic. It was this sort of constructed, teleporting, psychic, evil creature that had been constructed by Adrian. And it sort of made sense to me that, no, the threat to the world is right there in front of us the whole time. It's Dr. Manhattan. He's the one that that doesn't fit in the whole thing. So making him the ultimate uh, key to Adrian's plan seemed to make sense. It all seemed to click together. So, and I knew some people would be upset and I also knew I didn't care. <laughs> Interesting. I, I don't, you know, people, people ask me if I, if I worry about what the fans are going to think whenever <laughs> I'm adapting something. And the answer is no, I, I care what I think as a fan. And I feel like if I, if it feels like Watchmen to me, because I love it so much yeah. or X-Men mm-hmm. to me, then the fans will go along with it, or they'll have a discussion, and they'll—you can't please everybody. So well, that's going down that road is 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 fruitless. Here's the good news, David. Everybody blames Zack Snyder for the change, so you're <laughs> you're good. Well, they shouldn't, because it was me. It was me. It was me and Darren Aronofsky's friend. I was gonna say, what do you think about? So you you know stop after nine eleven. You were like, let's make this less nine eleven y. Yeah. What do you think about every other blockbuster movie doing like a thousand nine elevens per movie, like every yeah. single movie? <laughs> Being just a, a, a kaleidoscope of nine elevens before our very eyes. Yeah, I think that that's problematic. I think that I mean, uh, you know, somebody once said to me about Die Hard Two. So the problem with Die Hard Two is that to demonstrate their power, they crash an airliner mm-hmm. and kill like three hundred people. Mm-hmm. So at best, that movie is a horrific tragedy. Right. Like so. Man of Steel, the Man of Steel problem. Where oh my God, everybody dies and he's murdering people or whatever. And and you know, um, and I'm not against a dark Superman story. I think I think that's fine. But but I think that 
it's it gets a little lazy to to destroy the world again and again and again. Mm. And I think you lose touch with more personal stories like Blade Runner, where this is a story about four people and one man who's trying to hunt them down. Yes. And then there's a love story woven in. And it's as epic as anything else. Yeah. You don't um, need 300,000 people dying and every building falling down because yeah. it's about the emotional stakes. Exactly. And so, like at the end of X-Men, um, so which I wrote as well, uh, so the first X-Men movie, we had um, Rogue was up in this machine up in the uh, Statue of Liberty's torch, and it was going to irradiate all the... Yes. world leaders and turn them into mutants, but it was really going to kill them, and Magneto didn't know that, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it was also going to kill Rogue. And we realized nobody gives a rat's ass about the world leaders. They're, right. all, they're all extras in tuxedos. Right. It's, it's meaningless to the audience. I mean, it gives you a sense of stakes, but what they care about is, is Rogue going to die? Mm-hmm. She's attached to Wolverine. Wolverine wants to save her. It's always about the personal. So I, I think there are... V- very much diminishing returns when you when you create these huge movies and try to make make it bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, like we're going to kill, um, you know. Well, I mean, you know, Avenger Infinity War was sort of cool. You know, we're going to kill half the people in existence. They're gone or for whatever. good. They're gone for They're good. Gone we're for never going to see Spider Man again. So <laughs> which, that was pretty wild. Yeah, which I don't understand because he's got a trailer. I don't know what to tell you. He's done. And he's it seemed like he good. was dust. So <laughs> yeah. that seems problematic. I think this. T- I think they're like setting it right before Infinity War. Ah, <laughs> another but, prequel. But yeah, but my point is, is that y- you can find cooler stories without necessarily blowing up the whole world or mm-hmm. having to top the last Avengers movie or what like when it's the Avengers okay I guess the world has to be in danger and so <laughs> on and so forth but you've got to find a way to personalize it and it's it's the same thing that like with Logan you mm-hmm. know which was such an amazing beautiful personal story and that's as epic as anything I've ever seen mm-hmm. so yeah that's my feeling Agreed. that's my rant all right wow that was great thank you that was great. All right. Getting back to Blade Runner. Getting yeah, back to Blade Runner. <laughs> Which is a very personal Yeah. Very personal story just about like Rick Dickard. Well, really, I ha- I argue now that Roy Batty is really the protagonist he of is, this film. I yeah. Say. And you know, he and Rucker Howard kind of yeah. talked about this because Harrison Ford kind of didn't like Blade Runner for a while because mm. you know, every, when it came out, everybody How unlike Harrison Ford <laughs> to be in a movie and be a and be a grump about it. Say he hates it. Yeah, I don't care for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that much fun. <laughs> and part of it is because you know when everybody praises Rutger Howard's performance, and then everyone's like, "What the fuck?" To Harrison Ford, he doesn't say anything funny, as David said earlier. And Rutger Howard, well, I was twelve. <laughs> it's a valid criticism. Yeah. And, and so Rutger Howard, like he says, you know, I'm just so shiny in this film, and like he kind of, uh, you know, kind of. This is Harrison Ford. Like that was his, you know, acting choice to be, you know, kind of a little bit more downtrodden, a little bit more the Norish detective. Like the only time that Harrison Ford really shines is when he does like the funny voiced inspector. Yes, I was going to say that to the Snake Lady, where he does this weird right. voice. <laughs> yeah. He plays a nerd. Well, well I, that that is hilarious. That scene. I, I I I would disagree with that. I think he's I think he's amazing in the movie. I think I think he's he is a He's the ultimate detective who doesn't want to come back, who do, who's just done with this whole thing. And he's the perfect counterpoint to to Roy Batty. You know, the problem is he's not 
It's not a fun character. Right. Yeah. Whereas Roy Batty, you know, digs who he is. He's got this great sense of style. He's, he's, you know, Roy Batty is on a quest for life. You know, he's, he's got an inspiring quest, whereas Harrison Ford doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the nature of the story, but I think he did it beautifully. I mean, once I learned to appreciate the movie, I was like, you know, it's it's quite an amazing performance. I also think this is an intentional uh, uh, directorial choice by yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, by Ridley Scott, especially when you place it in the context of like what type of character that Harrison Ford was playing around that time, yeah. and actually like your expectation as a twelve year old to see like a funny, wisecracking Harrison Ford and having that uh, undercut, I, I think is intentional. Uh, um, you know, by Ridley Scott. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And so when we get to the end scene, uh, if, if you don't mind me skipping kind of to that to talk about Roy Batty, he saves Deckard. He he's yeah. supposed to be the villain. And he ends up saving him as kind of showing that, you know, he has more humanity in him as this manufactured android than Deckard does. Because what does Deckard do the whole film? He shoots women in the back like that's what yeah. he does he shoots yeah. he doesn't even want to he doesn't enjoy it he just hates everything and he's sad and he drinks yes <laughs> yeah. instead and of like loving life and wanting more life and and yeah. Roy Batty like he has the time mm. of his life getting his ass kicked by Deckard having and then saving him like he seems to genuinely like want to get everything every last bit of life out that he can and so you end this film in the complete opposite you know direction of the novel where like you kind of have to come to the conclusion that these androids these replicants have found something about life and you know being human that actual humans have lost because they're all living in this decaying capitalist you know range drenched uh, city I, I have nothing to say to that that's that's bang on obviously the obviously in the real future we won't have rain so that doesn't (laughs) yes that's true there'll be no clouds so there'll be no now we've we've had all this apocalyptic rain yeah maybe we'll have extra rain maybe a lot of extra rain um yeah i mean i do think that the movie ultimately kind of becomes about life versus death and like in an interesting Mm -hmm. way that is you know uh you know uh, like purposely contradictory like the actual human life the person who is you know representative of, of actual life uh is someone who kills for a living who just brings death and doesn't want life anymore and then obviously the representatives of like life and wanting life are these uh uh you know these approximations of life which uh again is interesting yeah and you can see in harrison ford's face when he's about to fall off the thing when his fingers are giving way you can see on his face how much he wants to hang on to life and Mm -hmm. it's it's such a perfect ending because that's roy batty's last act is to say yeah, you were trying to kill me, but all life is precious, and I'm gonna I'm gonna save you, and then uh, I'm gonna look better in the movie uh, because of it. Um, and that's also that's also why I, the one thing I I I like I'm gonna make a statement that I like all the versions of this movie. Mm-hmm. I like the I like the voiceover version. I like all the versions. Ex- the only thing I can't stand is this suggestion with the unicorn that Deckard is a replicant. Okay, because I don't think it's necessary. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it undercuts the whole point of the movie, which is you can't make the point that Rucker Hauer is more humane than him in his final act if they're both replicants. You know, the point is Deckard 
is a human being, and and Roy Batty realizes all life is precious. Mm-hmm. If he's a replicant, it's like, oh, I maybe I sensed your serial number or something, and, and I could see it <laughs> in your eyeball. Some robots are good, and some and are evil. And I was like, oh, I'll, say, I'll only save another robot. It's like it's, it's just, a Transformers if they're robots. Yeah, it's about the Decepticons versus the Autobots. Well, unfortunately, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're you know they're clearly more than meets the eye, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, but the, yeah, that that element really undercuts the whole point for me. Also, his relationship with rachel it's like that only works if he's a human being and he's realized that whether rachel is manufactured or not he's in love with her interesting and if they're just both robots it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me so um so i've always hated that uh that suggestion and i deny it wholeheartedly i was a like defender of the you know maybe maybe he's a replicant story but don't let me stop no but i am just just because i have this crazy epic career i'm I'm becoming i'm becoming more convinced just because of the the larger you know us talking about it being life versus death and everything like that and uh uh i don't know i mean like i guess i do find i do think it's like interesting you almost get like a sense that maybe like Deckard at some points is like, am I a replicant in this movie? And that's an interesting uh, uh, that's maybe more interesting than him actually being a replicant is like, well, see, what I find more interesting is I think Deckard's like, what is my value as a human being if this is what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if all I'm doing is shooting women in the back and mm-hmm. and, and, you know, killing Pris and like all this stuff, then. Why do I have any more value than these than mm-hmm. these replicants? You know, and and I think that all gets undercut if he's. Uh, I mean, you know, worrying that he's a replica. I don't know. I just don't buy it. I, I agree. a bunch of nonsense. I agree. In fact, and the novel does play with this. Uh, there's a there's a scene in the novel in the film where a Rachel asks Deckard, you know, kind of suggestively, like, "Have you ever taken the test?" In the film, he doesn't right. answer. He just goes to sleep. In the novel, he says, "Yes, I I have," but. Through the novel, like he find he runs across this other Blade Runner who's like a complete piece of garbage, and he gives him the test because he thinks he's an android. But it turns out, no, he's just a human who's a complete piece of garbage. He's garbage, <laughs> he's garbage. So it is a question. Like I do find that interesting. Like him questioning whether he his own humanity, but the film like doesn't really, you know tackle that as you know as you know directly as the novel shannon where do you come down on the deckard replicant or human debate it's never something that i like really supported and it was never something that really upset me either i think i missed a little bit of it the first couple times i watched the movie and watching it now it's like that's interesting i don't think it's 100 percent necessary because like y'all were talking about it kind of detracts from the overall message, it's sort of like, why is that there apart from some more like mysterious sci-fi feel to it, I guess? Yeah, it feels like a twist. It feels like a, oh, right. we're going to do something clever. and It's, it's like, like a Nolan twist or something, which right, is really right, not. Right. It's the top. It's the top. Yeah, it's like the spinning top, which right. I do <laughs> like that kind of, I don't think it's that's like, necessary. Maybe he's a replicant. <laughs> I think I mostly ignore it and focus on other stuff in the movie. Yeah. 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 And speaking of other stuff that's pretty controversial that we have to get into. The uh, Shannon, I know you already know where I'm going. <laughs> I do. Um, the love slash rape scene. Um, I, oh yeah, I, yeah I, it's I, rough. Yeah, I just watched it again. It's it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. I generally come try to approach it the way that I think it was meant to be presented as this kind of noirish she's playing you know this tough guy she's being you know this demure woman they're both playing these gender roles that you know 
I, like it's not good, but I kind of try <laughs> to take it as it's not trying to be me- very charitable. It's not <laughs> meant to be. We're not meant to take it as a rape scene. Yes, but of course, if in real life, that's one hundred percent like a rape scene. Like, you know, of course. And I know Shannon, you've talked a bit about this, and it's just like, tell us what to think, please. <laughs> oh, I, I can't do that. That's not my responsibility. Um, but we we were talking about adaptations. And one of my favorite noir films is Kiss Me Deadly, mm-hmm. which, which the director of that movie took this noir hero and sort of played into how much of a piece of shit he is, how violent he is, how he's a fascist. Like the author of the original books hated it. Um, and so obviously in a movie like that, this guy is not a hero and you're not supposed to like anything that he does or, or like revel mm-hmm. in it. And I was thinking about that when when we were talking about adaptations and Blade Runner earlier and and Deckard is a little bit of a subversion of like a shitty noir guy, yeah. but that scene is definitely meant to be like cool <laughs> and like romantic. I don't think you're supposed to think he's like rapey or a piece of shit, but in real life he would be. So yeah. watching it, I've had, I've, I feel like when I was younger, I had no problem with it. Then I got a little bit older and I was like, Oh, that's really gross. And watching it now, it's like, what did they even mean with this? Why couldn't <laughs> it have been either he's a piece of shit or he's not. And you could have done right. either of those within the structure of this film, but it just comes out as like gross because he's like, at first she's really scared and trying to run away. And it, 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 you know, as a woman watching it, that kind of freaks me out. Then he like makes her consent and then she's in love with him after five minutes. And I was like, this is definitely written by like a man in the eighties. I don't <laughs> look, it's like that one scene where I'm like, Oh man, this could have been a lot better. I, to be fair, this is a little bit better than the love scenes in alien. So yeah they you know this used to be a thing in the old movies where you know the the woman wants to be kissed and doesn't know it until the guy you know plants one on her and Mm -hmm. obviously that's problematic and horrible um and i think in this movie there's an added element which is rachel is afraid once she figures out she's a replicant she's afraid to embrace her humanity Mm. at all um you know, I kind of, not that it's not problematic, it is problematic and it's horrible and and you would never do the scene that way now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would have never done the scene that way ever. But I know, you know, having watched those old movies, I know what they were going for, which is he's saying, you love me and, and you're running away from it because you're afraid of what you found out. and um, And he's trying to get her to a point where she understands that, whether she's a replicant or not, she still has to live her life. She still has to embrace love. She still has to embrace these things. And he's a rough guy. That's who he, that's who right. Deckard is. So it's interesting to to hear it through the perspective of 2019, uh, even though it took place in 2019. You'd have thought they'd be a little yeah. more woke. You feel like Deckard uh, would have read the, the Weinstein article and shit. Right, right, right. He'd have been like, well, this happened to Harvey. I don't want to you know, go down that road. Um, but, uh, Harvey, an asshole. Um, but, uh, but I think that that's the, that's the, I think the underlying point is that she does love him and he's trying to elicit a reaction out of her and he does it in his horrible noir tough guy way, which is, you know, uh, not a great, not a great message for, um, men or, or women anymore. Um, but it's the same thing as, you know, beauty and the beast, which is incredibly problematic. <laughs> it's really strange. All it says is, it's about a kidnapper 
All you have to do is fall in love with a monster, and he'll change into a beautiful prince. What, like that's a, what, what a, Beauty what a and great the Beast is, is a, is a cartoon child's version of the room. It's yeah. the room is what it is. <laughs> that's, exact, that's exactly right. And, and, or or uh, little, Mer- little Mermaid. Um, yeah. You know, well, she'll love thing. you if you just don't speak. If you just change, you change, you change everything you are, you are and don't spreading, speak. You'll... <laughs> what's what's that? Yeah, if you're pretty and you're skinny and you shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so right. a lot of those, a lot of those elements have. Uh, yeah. Have gone by the wayside, which which I think is a good thing. Like but, I almost feel like this is a, this has a scene. Obviously, it's reflective on uh, uh, Ridley Scott and the writer and everything like that. But it's also uh, uh, I think reflective on like the history of film noir and maybe like totally. how it's, these scenes have always appeared in film noir. Oh and, yeah, like, yeah. What Bogart we, Bogart would do this sort of thing, and and you know a lot of there was a, it was the classic sort of trope where you right. where you just grab the woman and kiss her and she'd fight you until she realized no, I love this guy right. and and. It's, it's reflective yeah. of anything of like a sort of like 40 of like what masculinity looked like in the like, you know, 10s through the 60s or That's something right. like that. That's right. Like there was what a twisted people thought masculinity was back then. That's right. There was a t- very twisted view of masculinity and and but it was woven into the culture. Now it's all good though. Every now masculinity well, now is fine. It. Now, we, <laughs> now we fixed it. Every w- women are safe, men are Don't, men now are it's all good. Scared. It's all um, good. Thank God we've gotten to this place <laughs> where everything uh, is acceptable. Yeah. I would say, too, it's interesting to kind of contrast that with the replicants and how they have this easy, comfortable intimacy and love with each other mm-hmm. that both yeah. Deckard and Rachel are so separated from. I still don't think it's okay. It's still like messed up and not okay, but I think that's also part of it. They have this weird, twisted, confused, noir thing, mm. whereas like Pris and Roy are just like happy and com- they're all happy and comfortable and comfortable with other people, but they're dying. That's that's part of them embracing life is I think is also embracing like a comfortable sexuality without ever yeah. being like creepy to each other or like pressing yeah, each other's boundaries you, or anything. Yeah, and you know that Roy would never strike Pris and that he mm-hmm. you know that he just loves her in a very pure and and childlike way. It's 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 really lovely. All right, so yeah, so you know. Speaking of, you know, talking about Rachel, talk about whether Deckard is a replicant or not. The Blade Runner 2049, the sequel kind of answers. Why are you doing? Why did you have to do this? Some, some of these questions. <laughs> no, I think the sequel merits conversation. It, 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 it does answer some of these questions. Deckard is not a replicant. Yes, him and Rachel were in deeply madly in love. Um, they had a kid. Korea <laughs> takes over after Japan. Korea takes over all the signs in LA. Yes. Sometime after Japan did. Um, replicants are everywhere now, uh, apparently. Like, there's, <laughs> there's supposed to be no replicants on Earth, but in 2049, there is like the film is nothing but replicants, basically. And I do say, like, I do really enjoy, I did really enjoy 2049. I did really like it. I thought it was like a really, you know, good movie but ultimately i feel like blade runner like stands on its own like you cannot beat that ending of the of decker getting into the elevator with rachel it shutting close and hearing the dun, 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 like that's it that's all you really need sure. um 2049 tries to do a lot of different things a lot of different things exploring some of the themes from blade runner but not really like in the same direction. And so I, I, I just feel like, th- and this is a film that like, I feel conflicted about it because I do really enjoy it and I want to watch it again, but also maybe it shouldn't exist. <laughs> I feel <laughs> kind of both these things at the same time. I, I, I felt that an hour of it should not exist. 
I felt like there was so much story and explanation. And the beauty of the original Blade Runner is you didn't really know what was happening. And in the end, it was a very simple story. And I kind of wish they had just cut an hour's worth of exposition and let you feel your way through it because it was so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, some of the shots are are so extremely beautiful. But I'll tell you my favorite part of uh, Blade Runner 2049 when uh, Robin Wright, who has never been close to terrible in a movie, Mm -hmm. is just terrible in this movie (laughs) because she's been directed this way or given this horrible dialogue or whatever. When she says to... um, his name Ryan Gosling yeah yeah okay she's like you know you you, I'm paraphrasing here you are an out of control killing machine (laughs) who is off the grid in a way that endangers the the populace to a great extent so (laughs) take the weekend off um, you know try to get your head together and just sends him back into the city I'm like what are you talking about like you couldn't like as a screenwriter I'm like couldn't he go couldn't he be off the off the charts you know and then know that they're gonna destroy him and then he escapes because he's a Blade Runner right like, wouldn't that make more sense? I, 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 anyway. think, Danny, I think Danny Danny Villeneuve is a great director. He's an well, it's Denis Villeneuve. Den, but, Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. And I de- and I and having and directed myself, I, I don't I don't like to criticize anybody, especially him. He's a freaking genius. I just think the movie was overdeveloped, and and uh, I think it didn't need know. to be a Blade Runner. Is my big concern for that. I would have loved to see Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. I would have liked to see him direct a different movie about future Los Angeles because there's so many beautiful images in that movie oh, so many yeah. in- incredible ideas but I think it's bogged down by me being like like having Blade Runner problems being like this doesn't fit for me with the other Blade Runner movie that I love so much and right. like why do you have to have make me have those problems you know uh, right. uh, also I just I am I am tired I don't need any movie I'm sick of any movie in the genre of Harrison Ford shows up and meets the younger <laughs> version of himself I like know, right? whenever Harrison Ford appears in the doorway and it's a reveal where old Harrison Ford walks in and he's like wow it's the new Star Wars or like, wow, I used to be a Blade Runner just like you too, kid. I'm right. like, I can't handle it anymore. No more of the Harrison Ford showing up again movies. Can you imagine, by the way, this is, this is what I was thinking about that, that, that movie is. Can you imagine watching Blade Runner 2049 and this is the only Blade Runner you've ever seen? And then like two hours into the movie, a man in like a gray shirt shows up <laughs> like, <laughs> and like, it, like demands all this like, uh, uh, you know, time. pomp and circumstance. I'm like, what the fuck is going on in this movie? And it's actually right. two hours into the film. <laughs> right. OK, sure. Uh, so, Shannon, you haven't watched Blade Runner 2049. And I know you love Blade Runner. And I, I like I didn't go see it in the theaters. Like, what were your feelings around just like not getting around to the sequel to one of your favorite films. I I don't know. I think I had heard that it was all right, but I, I think I put a lot of trust in the opinions of like my friends and, and what films they get excited about or, cause I don't have a whole lot of time to watch stuff. And if I hear that something like, it's okay, you could watch it. I'm like, I'm just not, I would just rather literally just rather watch the final cut again or watch the making mm-hmm. of documentary. That's on the final cut Blu-ray, which is really good. Yeah. Or, or or something like that. I just don't have the energy for it. Versus, I think when I was DMing with you earlier, something like Fury Road, I heard awesome oh, stuff about it, and I was like, "This is a reason to take this property and do something sure. like in that spirit, but different." Rather than okay, we have Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford is still alive for five minutes. 
let's do this right. and like get this get this in get this together and then I, I i was saying earlier too i thought about trying to watch it for this because you asked me on yesterday and i saw it was three hours long i was like i just don't i just i don't have the energy for it i guess <laughs> you know, it's not something that i can get excited about i don't want to be in, like you were talking about i would much rather see a new sci-fi movie than like i'm just going to be comparing this with something that i've loved for 10 years in my head and yeah. it's going to come up short. I know it is. And I'm not like a, a fan of uh, what? Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I just, uh, I loved the opening scene with Dave Batista. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's Ooh. like that, that alone is worth the, the time. Yeah. So check that out and then turn it off. Watch <laughs> the highlights. The Get the highlights. Go to movieclips.com on YouTube yeah. and watch the 2049 movie clips I, or whatever. I do have to push back a little bit because watch, mm-hmm. look, I'm looking at both these films side by side right and yes the you know blade warren 249 does look beautiful but it looks beautiful in a very 2019 clean way got the gloss it's got the two Mm. clean gloss there's a shot in the movie i remember where it's like ryan gosling is like on a rooftop by himself and he's like contemplating and then there's a big like a a big like her style billboard behind him Mm. and i was like First of all, like, where in Blade Runner verse are you anywhere where it's not packed with people? How is he up here, like, by himself in front of this, like, very clean image? I was like, this just looks too, I mean, you know, yeah. I like it, but it looks too Coruscant. It's too <laughs> yeah. Coruscant right. for, uh, right. for Blade Runner. Yeah. Well, we were talking earlier about the first one. Something I appreciated, like, I, like this is probably like the eighth time I watched it, like I said, is the use of real animals. There's so many animals in the movie and like comparing people and animals and I'm just thinking about like a CGI snake and how annoyed I would have been um, <laughs> and something like that. And, how and it would be it like too cool and like going too, around the right. arm too cool. It would be like animated. a giant boa constrictor with like lasers <laughs> coming off of it or something stupid. I mean, stupid. this is the thing that I, I feel even like you compare the ending scenes of these two movies and I'm sorry to spoil it for you. I don't you, care Shannon. about spoilers. Uh, uh, but it's like on in Blade, in the original Blade Runner, they're just on a rooftop. And it's all about the like emotion between these two characters. We're just watching like someone's like hand. He might fall off the roof. Blade Runner 2049 is this like big effects heavy thing where like a flying car is in like a bunch of CG water. And like it's just like too much. I don't need that much. You know, I actually yeah. did like the scene, except for it's very confused because at that point, you're supposed to be rooting for Harrison Ford to die if because of like the <laughs> twist of the plot. You're supposed to be rooting for the old bla- for for Rick Decker to drown to death for some. I'm never reason. gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is so funny that they do these with these original movies, and not to say that they, like this, the Blade Runner 2049 is disrespectful to the original, but in a sense, you could call it disrespect that the plot of the movie makes you want to uh hope that the original character dies <laughs> like uh, it's a little bit like odd very anyway whatever 2049 is very beautiful a lot of people really loved that movie it really it's bothered got, it's got me some great elements it just it's just overdone there were a lot of reviews ways. that were like it's better than blade runner and i was like oh, i have to tap out i have stupid. to tap out <laughs> <laughs> those, those those are written by stupid people right? <laughs> i don't mean that pejoratively i mean that accurately <laughs> All right, well. So we've talked about almost everything, Blade Runner. Any final words on Blade Runner, everybody? Final right. words. I liked it. I like it, too. I have to agree with you that I like all the different versions, and they all have something I do, special. Right? I, I even like the laconic voiceover. I, you know, I kind of get it. It's, it's, you know, maybe maybe he 
well, I can't remember what the final thing is, but he maybe <laughs> maybe had some final appreciation for life or something. Yeah. <laughs> I like him kind of summing it up. It's 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 yeah. it's noir, you know. It's it's kind of cool. I, there are some people I know who don't like Blade Runner. Like they appreciate it mechanically, but they find it really cold. I think that's interesting because I, I understand that, but I also I never found it that way. I always found it very mm-hmm. like beautiful and moving and very relatable. And it just sort of makes you appreciate life more. And it's like, you know, if this guy can do so much in four years of life, what am I doing? Just sitting at a computer or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I've I, always loved it. I agree. I think there's a so much like heart and humanity to this movie. I just think that the movie like intentionally tries to obfuscate it. Like yes. the movie mm-hmm. is trying to make humans feel inhumane. And if there's a feeling of it being like alien or cold, I think that's because he like so effectively crafts a future that is alien and cold, you know? Yeah. And I think if anything was tweaked, like if Deckard enjoyed the violence more or if it was a little more sentimental or a little more soft, it would just be awful. And I would just hate it and (laughs) think it was stupid, even though it's a gorgeous movie. Um, Yeah, yeah, I've I've only ever seen the final cut, but I should watch the others, but I just want to keep going back to it. I was going to say the one final thing, because we mentioned it earlier, but I I was going to say how how brutal and sort of not, not cool the action scene. Yeah, the violence. Mm-hmm. The no, they're upsetting. Very exciting, but they ultimately are just like, he does not seem like a good person. It's like a person is in fear, like running through a crowd, and this guy is like trying to shoot them in the back. Like, there's ne- they're never played for like, you know, cool slow mo action sequences, and you never really get the sense that like, Again, Deckard is like the good guy in this. Oh, I think that's what threw me off as a kid, too, because I was used to Indiana Jones and, you know, Indiana Jones is murdering people all over the place. And it's <laughs> but just, they're Nazis. It's just great fun. They're Nazis. And, you know, everybody, everybody deserves it. Yeah. Or, or Star Wars, they're, they're masked stormtroopers. And so, <laughs> I mean, like Luke murders millions of people on the, on the Death Star. Like he's this enormous mass killer. Yeah. Um, but it's all in good fun. And, and what is so, you know, I I think um, Shannon? Shannon, yeah, Shannon. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I I think Shannon's exactly right that because they didn't romanticize it, because they because, and that's why Deckard doesn't want to come back. He mm-hmm. knows it's just ugly and brutal, and he's just burnt out on it. He just can't do it anymore. And then when he does it, it's it's ugly and brutal, and and he's just back in it. And there's no romance to it. You know that the replicants are in the right. That this horrible system has forced everybody into this this terrible situation and in and in a way through all of this ugliness you find this beauty of humanity and it's it's a real it's an amazing trick from a cinematic perspective yeah shan i think you really hit the nail on the head like by saying if this film was a little bit more sentimental it would just not work it would be laughable right. something like the tears and rain scene like it would be it with him with the right. dove that would just be too on the nose if this had if this film hadn't built up you know the hour and 50 minutes of darkness before it because like this is a, a film about recapturing humanity i never want to watch a movie that was described like that you know but this film just blows me away because it brings me into another world where i can get that message and like not laugh or feel as cloying or anything yeah. like that it just yeah, really real like yeah. humane lesson this movie tricks me into feeling good things about humanity for god's sake <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know and, and it occurs to me i don't think i mean i've always thought this and i've never heard anybody say it but the so I grew up in Japan and I, I read a lot about samurai culture and everything and what he's doing. So you, you all know the famous story that Rucker Hauer wrote that speech, yes. the, mm-hmm. the tears mm-hmm. and rain speech at the last minute and then came out and did it. And what it is, 
is it's a samurai death poem. Mm. When, you know, like Tears and Rain is a very sort of classic when a samurai has to die, they write their final haiku. And, you know, it's about the falling cherry blossoms or the beauty in in mm. in just the tiniest thing. Like that's the ultimate sort of Zen uh, achievement is in the moment of your death to find the beauty in in the most minuscule thing, and and that's that's what I think uh, Rucker Hauer wrote into that speech. That's why that that you know all those memories lost like tears and rain. It's it's uh, it's his final samurai death poem, and so um, I just wanted to say that yeah. incredible. Yeah. Now I'm going to go cry. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well. I think that's that. That right, is Leslie? that. Thank you so much for joining us, <laughs> uh, David. Where can oh, people? Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Where can people find you if they don't uh, know? For... I'd rather they do. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> but if you must, uh, I'm on uh, the only social media I do is Twitter. I'm uh, at at davidbhater dot com, and uh, we try to have a lot of fun there and 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 not. Uh, face up to too much of the horror of the world. Um, <laughs> I just wrote the first season of a show called Warrior Nun over at Netflix, which should come out at the end of the end of the year. Um, I just played the pirate Creamy Zeus on Hot on Hot Streets, just a oh. show. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And then I just fought uh, Gorilla Grodd as King Shark on The Flash. So those wow. Are, those are my current uh, claims. Oh, yeah. So, folks, for the for the people listening at home, I believe that... Uh, our favorite, our one of our uh, recurring guests, Bugmane, is also appearing on Hot Streets. Oh, so right? I believe that he also does a voice, or maybe wrote for it, or something like that. But that's very funny. I don't know. They just brought me in, and they wanted me to play a a, a pirate with the powers of cream. <laughs> I can trickle. I can, you know, do all sorts of things. So. And and we, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, folks. You you've heard the golden voice, okay? If you want. David, you know, to, you know, send a greeting card message to a friend. <laughs> right. Do your outgoing voicemail. Maybe promote your podcast. <laughs> you can book them at cameo.com slash snake. That's true. Um, that's true. I, I didn't bring it up because it's getting so crazy. Wow. I don't even know what to do. Like people, so many people are asking me to do this and which is thrilling, but it, it it's you know, oh God, it's getting a little overwhelming. I, I spend, uh, I you know, imagine. I spend hours in my in my uh, office at home just growling at people. <laughs> this is Snake. Happy birthday! You know, um, and it's a very cool thing, and and uh, it is it is paying for my car, but um, but it's a little overwhelming. If you have respect for David's time, do not book him on a cameo. Okay, if you're listening out there, no, don't you can't fucking waste his time with another cameo. No, you can't. I don't mean to complain about all the people offering me money to say things. I, I just it is it's it's been a little overwhelming. It's, it's, it's something else, but I do love all the fans, and I love um, being able. You know, they just asked me. It was a nice little viral moment. Somebody asked me to say trans rights are human rights, and and uh, and I did, and everybody was surprised. And I'm like, well, come on, man, why do why do we have to be? They were surprised by that. Yeah, they were like, you know, they were so thrilled that I would stand up for wow. trans. But I stand up for anybody's rights. I I I you know so so from that perspective, it does some good, and and it's a nice uh, it's a nice thing. Awesome. I didn't cool. mean to complain. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I was just giving. No, you I'm a sure hard it's time. a lot, and I'm sure you get all sorts of weird stuff. On it. I do. Well, you know, the other thing about cameo is that is that like white supremacists will try to trick ah. you into saying right. white supremacist things. So I'm like, if I don't understand the slang or whatever, I send it ah. back and go, "You got to clarify this for me." Interesting. I'm not going to do any of that. Nonsense. Interesting. Yeah, don't let Snake 
fucking uh, you know uh, uh, be a white supremacist for God's no. sake. <laughs> Nazis deserve a punch in the face. Hell yes. <laughs> there you Hell go. Yeah, in my philosophy. All right, Shannon, where where can people find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Plenty of Alcoves. That's my personal account. I'm also at Struchy Movies. And if you go on YouTube and look up Struchy Movies, I have a series called Fake Friends, which is about parasocial relationships. And I'm also on an actual play podcast called Critical Bits, which my friend H-Bomb, David, actually paid you to do a very strange promo for recently. I just did a promo for Critical <laughs> Bits. I was laughing so hard. Because he made you say critical bits. <laughs> you heard Jim Davis and Garfield tells you what to do. Oh, that's right. That yeah, was yeah, the one they that asked you paid me. for. And I was they like, oh, God, that I was Jim Davis. Yeah. <laughs> and that was also paid for by H-Bomb, who has nothing to do with the podcast. So I want to clarify that, too. He's like, I think this is funny and I'm going to do this. And it was a secret from the people who actually run it. And right. then they were just like thrilled and freaking out. So I was That's like, so oh, God, hard. I'm going to have to talk about being on that. So I'm glad <laughs> so Leslie funny. brought that up. So I didn't have to. <laughs> it was very so weird. Funny. Um, all right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This yes, is Struggle Session. You. You want to say Bernie would have won in the snake voice? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't want that kind of. You, you, you don't want Snake to get called a Bernie bro now. He'll get canceled. All right, let's go. That's enough. I love Bernie. Bernie. I love Bernie. I love everybody. I don't. I love everybody but Trump. Yeah, awesome. You can go to hell. All right, folks. All right. Peace. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.